Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating and review. That helps other listeners find the show. Blockchain Warehouse is an international blockchain accelerator, offering a wide range of token sale advisory services to promising blockchain-based ventures. With a leading advisor network, BCW is at the forefront of building landscape-changing blockchain companies and hosting successful token sales with more than $20 million raised so far. Clarity PR is a global strategic communications agency that shapes market-leading narratives for brands in crypto and blockchain to drive awareness and grow business. Working with clients, including Atlas Quantum and Securitize, Clarity can move quickly to differentiate the value of your business. Please visit clarity.pr to learn more. Raising the bar together with Preciate, launching this summer. As a sponsor of Unchained, Preciate has recognized amazing people because Preciate believes in the strength of recognition and relationships, in the strength of community. Who will be recognized today? Stay tuned. My guest today is Chris Dixon, partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Welcome, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. We're recording this episode just a couple of days after your big news. Mm-hmm. Congrats on your new crypto Thank fund. You. Thank you. And also on nabbing Katie Hahn as your new GP. Yeah, we're very excited about her. Let's talk first about the new fund. Mm-hmm. You raised $300 million for a crypto-only fund through Andreessen. Mm-hmm. Although Andreessen has been investing in crypto for a while now, aside from the fact that you were bumping up against the limits of how much you could invest in crypto via the regular fund, why create a crypto-only fund? Yeah, I mean, the main reason the main reason is we wanted to have, um, you know, kind of a first class effort to we, th- we think crypto is incredibly important. And we wanted to have a first class kind of organization and effort to approach the opportunity. So this allows us to have, um, you know, a full team. Uh, I think we have eight now um, for kind of on the or sorry, three on the kind of technical side. Um me, Katie, um, uh, general counsel, uh, operations, things like this. So, as you know, crypto just kind of has a whole bunch of complexities and uh, and and is just different in a lot of ways. So, so the main thing was to have kind of a first class organization devoted to doing this and to really make it kind of a, a key focus for the firm. And out of all the technologies that you do invest in, why create a crypto-only fund as opposed to like, you know, a VR-only fund? We do have a bio fund. So we thought, you know, bio, kind of the intersection of computer science and bio was an uh, interesting enough area and different enough. I mean, sort of one way we think about it is, um, you know, is the knowledge specialized enough that you need a dedicated team? Um, So on the bio side, for example, like, you know, we we have two partners there who have deep backgrounds in biology and they also have also computer science. But, you know, one, one sort of simple way to think about it is if I go to a bio meeting, I understand maybe the business stuff and the computer science stuff, but I don't really understand like a significant portion of the bio stuff. So it's just a different domain. Right. And, and crypto, you know, although it's, it's computer science, um, there's so much, as you know, and you focus on this on your podcast, there's so much kind of specialized knowledge. You've got to read all these white papers. You've got to kind of like study consensus mechanisms and just this whole world and the people involved. And it was different. We felt like it was different enough um, that it really required kind of a whole, well, you know, a whole kind of separate effort. And I'm so not surprised that you guys hired Katie Hahn yeah. because I think she's so brilliant. She's awesome. And she has the exact background, in my opinion, that would help crypto gain legitimacy. How did you come to bring her on as a GP? Yeah, so I got the privilege of working with her on the Coinbase board. So she's been on the board uh, for, for over a year. Um, she she uh, and, and has just been incredibly valuable there and is you know, super actively involved in all aspects of the kind of company. And I think she's just an outstanding board member. You know, a lot of how we think about it is, you know, there's really two, you know, I think sometimes people outside of the venture world think what you do in venture capital is, you know, pick companies to invest in, which of course is some of what you do. But a lot of what we do is after we invest, you know, try to help the company, right? And so I got to see firsthand how helpful she was. And then I just heard, and as you know, like she's in the community, I I just, her name comes up all the time. 
you know, founders all want to meet her. They want to work with her. And so, you know, and, and then she, she's also on the board of hacker one, for example, she also has security expertise. Um, uh, and so just getting to see her, her work firsthand, um, and just being super impressed by her. And so, yeah, I think it was a real, real coup to be able to recruit her. So I'm, it's a, I'm excited to work with her. And what do you think about the fact that she is the first female GP? I think that's great. You know, we obviously, we, we want to have uh, more diversity in our, in our, you know, in our general partner ranks. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we, she's, she's just an outstanding person for this and founders want to work with her. And so, yeah. Yeah. But it is so exciting, I think, because everybody talks in this space and I, I, I think it's just true. If I look at the numbers and when I go to conferences, I can see that there are so few women, but uh, she's definitely so deserving. Of hopefully that will change. Right? I mean, hopefully I, I hope that over, I mean, I hope, I hope as the space grows, it will change, um, in multiple ways, I think both in terms of, you know, gender diversity and, and things like that. Um, uh, but also I think in terms of, you know, bat, like just sort of skill diversity, I think, I think for the space to grow, we need, you know, people who, you know, aren't like right now, as you know, the, the community tends to be very technical, kind of focused on, you know, consensus mechanisms and all these kind of very technical things. And that's very important. And, and we need to continue to have that. But I think we also need people with, with different, both, you know, kind of, uh, backgrounds in, uh, you know, let's product design and general management and engineering and just like all sorts of other things. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that a really important thing over the next couple of years is to make kind of the space more inclusive and grow it and, and have more people, you know, I, I you know, have people leaving, uh, you know, other industries, uh, other tech companies, you know, tech companies, universities coming into the space. And I think that's the way we kind of succeed. I kind of, I saw this, you know, it reminds me a little bit, I was involved in the kind of what people call the web two movement, you know, so kind of, I'd started a company in 2004. It was a consumer internet security company. Um, and I was sort of, you know, like there was this sort of all these people that were into like, you know, these, these, these new ideas around like RSS and tagging and like delicious and Flickr and all, I don't know, there's this whole kind of thing that was going on back then. And, 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 you know, and the early people in, into that, you know, were really into like kind of, you know, the ethos of it and the, and all the, you know, all the, the nitty gritty, but then as the space grew, right, you kind of, you brought in the space brought in a, a much broader set of people and companies like Facebook and other, you know, successful companies did that. And so I think that's the way we kind of get to the next stage is to, is to really kind of, you know, if, 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 you know, hopefully three years from now we're, we're, you know, the, the space is 10 times, if not more people working in it and much more reflective of the general, you know, at least tech population and hopefully the general population. And I'm sure her regulatory or her government background is a big factor. Yeah, it's certainly her regulatory expertise is, is important. I mean, that's a key. That's a, that, that is, I mean, she, she's got a lot of skills, but that, that certainly is an important skill. Um, you know, I think it's, as you know, and I'm sure, you, you know, you've, you know a lot about this, but the, the, uh, the biggest issue right now is just the uncertainty. Um, and so every founder that we're working with is sort of, Hey, can you help me just figure out what I need to do? Uh, you know, uh, there obviously are bad actors, like none of the people we're working with are bad actors and there's lots of good actors. Um, despite what, you know, sometimes the impression some people have of the space, um, the good actors want to want to comply. Um, but, but frankly don't know how right now. Uh, um, uh, and so helping, helping projects with those issues is, is very important right now. Yeah. So we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I wanted to also ask, you know, when you invest in crypto, you're investing in open source projects. Mm -hmm. So how does that investing process differ from when you're investing in traditional startups and how does that affect your decision process around which projects to invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think of it as we're investing in, well, yeah. So, I mean, we, it's not that different. So for example, we've been investing, you know, in our, in our traditional VC you know, practice and just generally in Silicon Valley, people have been investing in kind of open source. I mean, not directly in open source, but things around open source. So, you know, like Mongo and GitHub and all these other kinds of things. So there's, you know, a big open source component, but then there's some other kind of component layered on, which, which, uh, you know, uh, provides a business model or something. Right. Um, but I think like, for example, we don't like, we're generally like, I, I'll speak for myself. I'm very opposed to things like software patents. I generally don't believe that defensibility and technology comes through things like patents or trade secrets or closed source things. They generally come through network effects, communities, kind of other kinds of things like this. So 
I mean, just think about, you know, take Bitcoin's an obvious example. Uh, you could, you know, as, as people have forked Bitcoin, you could, I could fork, I could have Chris's Bitcoin tomorrow. Uh, I don't think anyone would use Chris's Bitcoin. Uh, Actually, well, in your case, they might. But. No, so, but, you know, the point is like, you know, I, but this goes back. Like, I mean, like, I like to give the example of like Wikipedia, for example. Wikipedia is all, you know, all the, all the information there is open source, right? I could download it. I could create Chris's Wikipedia.org, right? But like, no one's going to go to it, right? It's just not, it's not how the real, how actual defensibility happens on the internet um it comes through the fact that wikipedia you know it's almost like think of it as almost like uh it's almost like a like a restaurant it's like a venue or something like wikipedia right it's like a place you go like you go there because the other people are there because the community is there right because and the community creates great content and then you go because of the content is there right so you can you can replicate that uh, you can replicate the data, but you can't replicate the community, right? Um, so that, that's how we think about it. It's sort of who who is, if it's very, you know, who's going to build a network that is going to have defensibility through technology, you know, obviously good technology, but that can be copied um, through, and then ultimately through, you know, good governance, good community ethos, kind of, you know, those kind of, you know, and that, and that leads to second order net network effects. So then, you know, I expect as these networks become, larger, they'll start to get integrated into more things in the world. So if you look at historical internet protocols, the TCP IP, right, one of the core protocols of the internet, like if I, you know, I can make my own version of TCP IP, but it's not going to be baked into, you know, TCP IP is baked into every computer, every router, every sort of thing in the world. Like as these things become more important, they'll start to get baked in these integration points and things like that. Yeah. So we really look at it through the lens of who's going to create kind of the best technology that leads to the best community and network. And so when it comes to looking at, you know, the different types of technology that could be developed in this space, I'm sure you're probably thinking like, oh, these certain things need to be developed or these certain problems need to be resolved. So what do you think are some of the biggest problems right now that crypto networks need to resolve? Yeah, I mean, some of this will be obvious. So, for example, you know, scaling is a big issue, right, obviously. And so that that and that's that means different things in different networks. Um, But, uh, you know, I think I think of it as so like the way I like to frame it is we have this crypto creates this great, this incredible new software primitive, which is trust, right? Which is this idea that from a bunch of uh, non-trusted network nodes through these consensus mechanisms, you know, like, like, uh, you know, Nakamoto consensus in the case of Bitcoin, or like there's a whole bunch of other consensus mechanisms um, through these consensus mechanisms, you, you get this sort of emergent property of trust where you can trust the network. And that trust lets you build things like money or smart contracts and other things. Right. But you pay a price for trust which is um, you, you have to kind of waste network resources or, uh, you know, or use redundant network resources, which makes these networks harder to scale, right? So, you know, so let's take Ethereum as an example. Um, so every piece of code that you run, every smart contract that you run on Ethereum has to run redundantly on all these different, you know, on all the miners, right? So whatever it is, 30,000 miners or something. Um, that's not an efficient, you know, if you're looking at it through the lens of, uh, you know, you're a Google engineer looking at it through the lens of like how you design traditional distributed systems, Systems, that's not going to look like an efficient way to do it, right? And so, how do you? So, the question is, how do you, you know, keep that important feature of trust while also scaling these networks to what I call web scale, which is hundreds of millions and really billions of users, which is kind of what you know Facebook and all these other kinds of networks are at today. There's a ton of good work going on there um, at many different in many different areas. I mean, there's there's stuff going on, you know, at the core. There's new pro- new projects every day coming out with kind of new kind of consensus mechanism mechanism breakthroughs. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. You know, ideas around like how you can shard these networks, which is sort of you know that's kind of a basic you know basic, but like a standard uh, computer science move to kind of create more parallelism is to do sharding. There's a sort of related ideas, things called like plasma and like kind of sub chains. There's on the Bitcoin side, there's Lightning Network and you know kind of uh, uh, payment channels. Um, you know, on Ethereum side, there's something equivalent thing called state channels. There's sort of side networks of things like you know like Truebit, which is sort of this side. Almost think of it like a GPU next to your CPU, like kind of gives you additional horsepower. Um, there's a whole bunch of interesting like kind of brand new cryptographic research around things called like Starks, for example, where you can where you can do more computation off chain and just use the blockchain for and I'm happy to go into more of this but there's a ton of interesting work going on there I'm very optimistic about it but that has to happen right because right, right now like I think Ethereum supports for example 1.2 million transactions a day you know on the Bitcoin side this is reflected in the cost of a transaction 
which I think is, you know, right now it's sort of, it's fine in the digital gold use case. It's not fine if you want to, you know, use it for small casual payments, which was sort of the original, you know, that's the original white paper talked about. So that's obviously a big issue. That's something we've invested in a bunch of projects around that. Um, so that's on the infrastructure side. And then uh, there's a whole long, I can go on and on about infrastructure. And then, the, but then there's, so sort of, I sort of see it as, there's two big buckets, right? There's infrastructure and applications, right? And so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on the infrastructure side. I, I personally spent a lot of time on that. Uh, I think it's very interesting. Um, then there's the application side. So what do you do with these things, right? Like how do you actually, you know, in the end, you know, crypto wins when we have a billion people using these networks who don't even know why, you know, know what crypto is, right? right. Like that's sort of how I think how we win, right? Like no one cares, you know, people that use whatever Facebook or something don't need to understand the underlying technology, right? So, 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 so what do we fundamentally use these things for? And there, there's just a ton of interesting stuff happening in, in many different areas, everything from, uh, you know, uh, uh, crypto finance kind of, we call it, which is, you know, people creating like decentralized net decentralized exchanges and, and other kinds of interesting financial instruments, lending, you know, sort of things you would find in the traditional financial, uh, industry. There's a whole area of called, uh, you know, traditional asset tokenizations so of taking kind of, you know, uh, traditional assets, quote unquote, which is like real estate as an example and making a tokenized version that can be traded in the blockchain. Um, a bunch of stuff happening around kind of crypto goods, like virtual goods and gaming. And I think it's very exciting for like from, from a media and gaming point of view, things around payments. Uh, you know, I particularly think, I think a particularly interesting area for that is, is, uh, the, the billions, some, something like a billion people who have, uh, Android phones, you know, you can get a $15 Android phone. Now, um, there's, there's something on the order of a billion people that, that have Android phones that don't have bank accounts. I think, I think, providing kind of financial services so those people also most of them don't have identification either like literally don't have like a government issued id so let alone can't get a bank account i think providing uh financial services to those people was a really exciting opportunity anyways there's a whole a whole bunch of interesting things going on, on the application side and i expect you know i think one of the things that's so exciting about this area is it's pure software and software is this very rich malleable kind of medium and so I ex I would expect if if we if we talk again a year from now two years from now the list I give there will be much longer um, and in fact it is much longer than it was a year ago so just to give you a simple example non NFTs non fungible tokens i.e crypto goods that was that really didn't that was kind of a new I mean people I think people had sort of thought about it but like it really was a new concept in the last twelve months um, and unlocks this whole other area and, ha and and I think not only unlocks like new possibilities but unlocks what I, I always look at things through the lens of talent. And what, one of the things that really excited me about crypto goods is it got another, you know, million people excited about crypto who were more on the creative side, the gaming side. So I, like, I know a bunch of kind of game entrepreneurs who were early entrepreneurs around, uh, you know, Facebook and iPhone gaming. And until crypto goods came along nfts they were like okay this crypto thing is like you guys i don't know what you guys are doing over there but like it's not for me and now all of a sudden they're hey chris let's get together you know this stuff is, is suddenly interesting right because what is a crypto good it's 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 sort of proof of existence it's like a token but with graphics and it has this kind of whole other dimension to it that appeals to a whole nother set of kind of whole different sensibility and so that's really exciting because I, I think of it as like the way we win is we grow the army we need we need we need 10 million people of programmers and researchers and entrepreneurs and product designers and uh you know creative people and just like we need this big army to just go and create like all this awesome stuff and that's how we win and so anything we can do to kind of bring more people into the fold that's great right and so yeah. i think there will be more i think what we're going to see over the next year or two is more creative ideas like that that in turn excite new groups of people who then come in and we get this kind of this really interesting kind of flywheel going with, with kind of people and talent with, and, and then software and the two kind of feeding back on each other. Yeah. I was talking with Olaf the other day and we were talking about video games yeah. and about how now because of things like crypto goodies and what you call crypto goods, which yeah. by the way, I love the term. Yeah. I've not heard that until I wrote your blog post. I realized, oh, wow, like I could have a digital good or multiple digital goods in these virtual worlds, and then I could carry them from game to game. Yep. And then it's 
it's not that dissimilar from how I am in the real world where I have sort of unique things that are, you know, who I, that signify who I am, like this necklace and yeah. this shirt and, you know, that purse or whatever. And so it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I also did an interview with Philip Rosedale who had done mm-hmm. Second Life. Mm-hmm. Now I was doing High Fidelity. And he had mentioned to me that in the virtual world, like your height matters a lot less than it does in the normal world. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a bonus. And yeah. so I was thinking like, oh, there's like a lot of possibilities here. And and I haven't played video games in forever, but like just thinking about the possibilities there, I got excited. And, no, so the, I, no, I, and I agree. And I think, you know, I, I think we're at a moment now where I would argue we're in a moment, we're in this kind of interesting transition period in, I think generally in society kind of with the internet where, we still think of the digital world. A lot of people still think of the digital world as kind of um, as kind of second tier, second class to the offline world. Um, and and you hear that even in the language we use. So you know, there's commerce, which is offline commerce, and there's e-commerce, right? And, e-com- and so whenever you have like the modifier, you're sort of saying that's that's like the that's the subordinate the that's thing. the subordinate right. world, right? So there's email, you know, uh, e-commerce. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that we say digital goods versus goods, like, et cetera, where, you know, esports. Um, I, I think we're in this transition period. I think that 20 years from now, it's going to be obvious that the digital world is, is in many ways primary. Um, it's where you, you know, meet your, you know, meet friends. It's where you make, earn a living. It's where you do, you know, all of these important things. And this idea that, like, it, I think it will seem funny that, you know, we once, you know, uh, didn't have a notion of money and ownership in this world. Um, and so for me, goods, like, of course, goods are going to be important in the digital world because look how important, I mean, you certainly like owning, people seem to like owning things in the offline world. Why wouldn't they want to own things in the online world? And right now you do have this notion of virtual goods and games and things like this, but you're really kind of borrowing them. Um, you, the game, you know, I guarantee you that your goods and whatever you name the game, like they could change the rules. The game will eventually go away you don't really own those goods. They're not yours. You can't take them. You can't trade them. You can't really keep them. Um, and so, you know, I, I see it as taking what is obviously a uh, very important thing we do in the offline world, which is just like, you know, just like what Bitcoin did. So Bitcoin took, obviously money is really important in the offline world. So of course, it's going to be important in the online world. Um, uh, in the same way, you know, owning, having property rights in the offline world and owning stuff is going to be important in the online world. And so, yeah. I think it's just a matter of time before it's seen as like just sort of almost like a basic right that you would that you would be able to own things in the digital world. Yeah, and going back to how the digital is always seen as not the default, I experienced this shift where in the past, if I'd been writing for Forbes.com, I would have noted Forbes.com because yeah. Forbes meant yeah, yeah. magazine. Because that's the real one. And then, and then at this a is certain like- point, it was, no, I was writing for Forbes and that meant the website. And yeah. then if I was writing for the magazine, then I would say Forbes magazine. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did live through that shift. You've been talking and writing a lot about decentralization. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about, you know, you've seen this process both as a successful entrepreneur uh, in the traditional startup mode and obviously on the investor side as well. But how do you think crypto and decentralization are changing entrepreneurship and business models? Yeah. So, I mean, decentralization is a very broad topic and it can mean a lot of different things. Um, you know, I think one, one lens through which to look at it is, is, is through the kind of where we are in the tech world today, right? Which is, um, we're, we're in a period now where a highly centralized period, right? Where four or five, five, five tech companies, right? Uh, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft, um, you know, the, the vast majority of, of time people spend online and products they interact with and things like that are, are owned by those companies, right? Um, and those companies uh, are, uh, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, they're, they're challenging to work with um, because they, I, I wrote a, a blog post about this, it's called Why Decentralization Matters, where I, where I have this kind of S-curve I show, which is basically the life cycle of these platforms um, of just sort of what we've seen now over 30 years of tech platforms. So by platform, by the way, I mean a, a network where developers can build something for users sort of that provides kind of an intermediate point. So it could be windows, it could be Facebook, it could be Twitter, you know, Facebook in the case of like when you have like third party developers like Zynga, et cetera, it could be iOS. Um, and, and these things typically go through a life cycle where in the beginning, you know, Facebook starts off, they really, they're, 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 they're trying to get Forbes, to put their content on there. So in the beginning, they're like, please, please come over. You know, we need your content, right? Because they need it to make a better experience, right? Fast forward to today. And I think it's a very different story, right? I mean, they're like, Hey, we're going to, 
change the rules. We're going to flag you. We're going to, you know, lower your take rate. I don't know, whatever, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff, right? Because now they don't need you anymore because they're so, they're big. Right. And so this, and this is sort of this S curve I show, which is that you basically have this life cycle of these networks where in the beginning they try to attract what economists call complements, sort of the things that go with it, you know, the complementary goods and services. Um, but then at the end, they just sort of say, Hey, like there's a certain amount of money to be made and we want, we want most of the money. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to let you kind of hang around the sidelines, but we're going to take all the profits. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, you have Yelp going up in front of the Senate talking about Google, you know, like, so now you type a restaurant and it's like, you have to scroll down to like page two to get to Yelp. It's like, even though like, I don't know about you, but I always want to find Yelp and it's got to go to go to page two. And so, you know, and so, and so what happened, right? Because look, Google's, Google's, doing what they, you know, they're for-profit business. I'm not criticized. I think it's a, you know, fantastic company and they provide an amazing free service and it's, you know, they've done, they've, I think they've created awesome things for the world and they're doing what any company would do, which is they're now a mature company and they, they need to keep growing and they, you know, they can only grow so much through kind of organic means. And so they're now trying to monetize more and things like that. And it's just, it's just what happens. And that's, you know, and I think, but I think now 30, 40 years into the tech world, kind of the tech revolution, it's fine that those companies do that, but as you know, investors, entrepreneurs, et cetera, we also should be wise to this as well. <laughs> like this is what happens, right? So, and and in, in our business and venture, everyone, every VC will tell you this. They talk about platform risk. This platform risk is the risk when you're building another platform, and it's a massive, massive risk. So, you know, and then so so, but contrast where we are today, where if you want to build something and you want to get exposure, you have to almost have to get exposure through Facebook or Google or something else. That's just they just control how all the traffic on the web flows. You know, rewind 20 years ago uh, when the web was starting out and, you know, the, really the dominant quote unquote platforms were these decentralized protocols that, that, you know, thankfully the academics and the government and the various people who created the internet created these wonderful open protocols. So, you know, TCP, IP, HTTP, SMTP, et cetera. Um, and those were the kind of the, the rules that govern the internet. And so it was a decentralized network. And what that did was it allowed uh, creativity and entrepreneurship to, to blossom. Right. And so you had, you know, and that's why, you know, and, and, and Larry Page and Mark Zuckerberg and people like that benefited from that. Right. Mark Zuckerberg could put up a website and as long as, you know, they got traffic and they got users like the, you know, the, the IETF or the W3C or whatever, the web committee wasn't going to say, Hey, Mark, you know, we're going to take your profits now. Right. Because that's not how the, the decentralized networks worked. So that was great. But I think now we're, we're kind of harvesting today as a society and those companies, the seeds that were planted 20 years ago, and we're, we need to plant new seeds. Like we're harvesting that. And I think it's, I think it's dangerous now because I, I don't, I worry that the next, you know, uh, entrepreneurs in a garage or a dorm room, uh, don't have the same opportunity that those, that those founders had. And I'm not blaming them for it. I think they're doing what for-profit centralized platforms do, and that it has its own kind of a deep internal logic. If they didn't do it, they'd probably, you know, whatever, Wall Street would fire them or something. I don't know what would happen. But, um, but that's the logic of that structure. Um, um, what, what's, what's great now, though, is we have alternative structures, right? And so this is, and, and specifically a lot of the ideas that have come out of the crypto community and the, and the, the idea that you can build platforms that are very powerful and have very rich functionality, um, but also enforce uh, kind of the rules of the platform in a way that won't hurt entrepreneurship later on, right? And so, well, but I know. do have a question about that because some of them have governance baked in in a way where the platform could actually change. So wouldn't it sort of be somewhat similar to how you know, Facebook or Google might have changed. Well, so the I think it depends on the network. I think, yeah. I mean, so I think, I think that's an important part of being a good network is, is giving, you know, is, is baking into both the code, uh, and the governance that, you know, the assurances that that won't change. And, you know, and I think, but we also have other mechanisms, for example, forking, right. Um, if, you know, I, I, I let's just, I mean, take Ethereum. Like if I think Ethereum is a very well governed network, I think, um, I don't, I, I can't imagine that, that the Ethereum network would, would ever go and say, Hey, we're going to, we have some smart contract that's wildly successful. We're going to, you know, change the rules and take more of their money for the you know foundation or for the platform. But if they ever did, I, I think they would, they would run a real risk of getting forked. Um, and so, you know, I think there's sort of inherent, I think there's both, you know, there's, there's kind of inherent guarantees built into the, the nature of the networks and the fact that they're open code and, and, uh, you know, and, and I think, uh, and the fact that, you know, that there aren't like the people, at the foundation don't really control the network. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
the various, as we've seen with, with uh, you know, the Bitcoin debates and things, there's multiple constituencies, right? There's miners, there's node operators, there's developers. And I think that, you know, that, and then you also have then the threat of kind of exit of, for, of forking, uh, people leaving the network. I mean, there's actually two forms of exit, right? One is you can just say, you know what, I'm going to take my... I'm going to take my software and move somewhere else. By the way, that's another form of exit, right? I mean, and like you're seeing this more and more with a lot of the competing smart contracts to Ethereum. Smart contract platforms are, are building in, like they're using the EVM and a bunch of being very like, they're making it switching costs very low, right? So that's right. another, so there's a whole bunch of kind of things. I think Vitalik has a great phrase. He said, it's not that we're removing the platform, it's that we're shackling the platform. We're not removing the intermediary, we're shackling the intermediary, right? So shackling meaning like we're putting constraints on it so that it can't become a bad actor. Um, oh, and, there, there's, and there's a ton of different constraints uh, put on these networks in a way that, I mean, you have no constraints on a on a Google or Facebook. They literally just decide, okay, we're going to change the algorithm and like, there's no good luck. What are you going to do? Use some other, you know, get right. all your friends to move to another social network? Like, it's just not going to happen. So Interesting. So it's it's a you know it's not it, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out in the future, but it's a much more attractive. I, I would say these platforms in the crypto world are a much more attractive uh, platforms to build on it for entrepreneurs and as investors, we think they're much more attractive to invest you know to invest in. Something else that I've been so curious about is Facebook recently formed a group to explore how it could use blockchain technology. And then we've got these other companies yeah. and startups that have announced plans to either launch coins or crypto networks. You know, there's Kik and Kodak and Telegram. Yeah. I tend to view the business model of centralized companies as kind of antithetical to the organizational structures that are optimal for building blockchains or blockchain technology projects. So do you think it's possible for a company to create a successful crypto network or product using blockchain if they're yeah. a centralized service? It's definitely, I mean, it's, it's, I would definitely call the crypto both kind of ethos and business model. I put quotes on that because it's a different, you know, it's sort of a business model, a model of having tokens and owning tokens, things like that. Um, it's certainly highly misaligned with the ethos and business model of kind of traditional centralized tech companies. Um, you know, it's, uh, the, 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 f the phrase disruptive is thrown around a lot in Silicon Valley. You know, there's sort of a technical word of it, uh, meaning of it from Clay Christensen's books, Innovator's Dilemma, where you have, you know, his, his definition is you have this new, you know, a, a new technology that is, um, you know, fundamentally misaligned with the existing technology. And in fact, the, the really interesting thing about his book is that, even, you know, is that if you're a smart incumbent, uh, and you're doing what you normally do, which is kind of making your best customers happy. This new thing will look like this kind of crappy thing that doesn't satisfy the needs of your best customers. Um, and so actually this, the smart manager will ignore them. Now he does have uh, a lot of writings about how, you know, how do you address these disruptive technologies? And what, what Christensen says is you really just have to create a new organization. He, he says you literally like should put it in like a different like location and like different management team and like different incentive structure. And so I think it falls into that bucket of like challenges. So I don't think it's completely impossible, but I think it needs a lot of care and thought needs to go into the organization and how to do it because it's just very, very different. Right. And it's just fundamental. I mean, if you just take an example of like, take a, you know, among other things, these, these, these business models will probably be deflationary. This is generally what happens in tech is that each new wave is sort of deflationary. What I mean by that is it, 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 um, lowers the margin. So, you know, and, and, and shrinks the market size rather. Um, and so, you know, Craigslist shrunk the market of classified ads, right? I mean, there's just like the dollar spent on, I mean, which is great for consumers. they spend less money. Terrible for media. It's terrible for media. And so, um, you know, and Craigslist can do quite well if they capture like a big share of it and they have a really low cost structure and everything else. Generally, like, yeah, it's bad for media, good for consumers, good for the disruptor, right? It's generally how the pattern works. Um, and so, you know, if you think about a crypto decentralized file storage system, like, and then you think about Amazon and S3 or something like they're, you know, they're sort of the incumbent, like it's, it's going to be in inherently deflationary. And so it's as a good manager of S3, it's going to be really hard to say, Hey, let's go like ruin this great business we have. So I think the only way to address it is to, to, to do something that's really kind of radical um, and, and really create like kind of a new organization. I mean, look, but, but look, I'm putting our bets almost, almost exclusively are on uh, brand new companies that are, that are first principles designed, you know, in this new, from this new world. I mean, 
Right. Well, I'm not an investor, but I think I understand why you're doing that. We're discuss we're going to discuss governance, virtual reality, the democratizing potential of blockchains and more. But first I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors. Clarity PR is a global strategic communications agency that shapes market leading narratives for brands in crypto and blockchain to drive awareness and grow business. Working with clients like Atlas Quantum, CoinMint, Securitize, Smart Valor, and Verbex. Clarity PR can move quickly to differentiate the value of your business in the noisy blockchain and crypto space. Named as one of the fastest growing agencies in PR Week's Top 150, Clarity is well-versed in providing guidance to a wide range of companies looking to build their reputation and deliver high-profile media relations campaigns across mainstream business outlets as well as major tech and vertical trade outlets. To learn more and see a list of services, visit clarity.pr. Blockchain Warehouse is an international blockchain accelerator offering a wide range of token sale advisory services to promising blockchain-based ventures. With access to heavyweight technology leaders, the accelerator is heavily involved in crafting the blockchain technology, token sale, and regulatory landscape. Blockchain Warehouse will launch the first ever crypto shark tank in June. This week's episode features Block 66, an innovative blockchain mortgage platform that streamlines and organizes the facilitation of residential and commercial financing. Block 66 reduces the amount of time, persons involved, and money that it takes to complete a full mortgage cycle. Previously, real estate transactions on the blockchain required 100% funding up front, but that's a thing of the past with Block 66. Find out more at www.block66.io. Now it's time to recognize someone sponsored by Appreciate. If you've been wondering when a truly new consumer app would be launched on a blockchain-based protocol at scale, your wait is over. Appreciate is building the future you deserve, a trustworthy and transparent one by design. Powered by the Goodwill Composite Protocol. Today, Preshi and John Gobel recognize Adam Gall, co-founder and CTO of Decent. Adam is dedicated to building decentralized applications for the economy of tomorrow and is putting his money where his mouth is by hosting monthly beer and pizza crypto get-togethers in the Cleveland, Ohio area. That's where I'm from. Aren't you also I'm from, from Ohio? Ohio? Springfield, Ohio, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, awesome. This is like the Ohio episode. <laughs> where um, Adam has done everything from demonstrate solidity code to facilitate panel discussions. Adam and Deason are all about blockchain and the greater good. Thank you to Adam for leading the charge for crypto, blockchain, and all this amazing new technology that it can bring to our world. Go to Preciate.org to learn more about the Preciate community and recognize someone. Raising the bar together with Preciate, launching this summer. I'm speaking with Chris Dixon, partner at Andreessen Horowitz. We're about to see this race develop between various smart contract platforms. Ethereum has the first mover advantage, and you've called it the most important technology of the decade. But it has serious problems, which you know we've mentioned, scaling, there's some governance issues, there's been bugs in the code. Now we've got EOS, Definity, and Tezos, they're all launching. How do you think this competition will play out? And is there room for more than one successful smart contract platform? Yeah, just to clarify, but I think I did. I sort of said that, but I, I think what I'd like to say is I think crypto is the most important technology of the decade for sure, mm-hmm. and I think you know, and Ethereum is is the you know is sort of the leading to my mind right now the leading you know certainly the leading smart contract platform and embodiment of that. But you know, anyway, so just to, just to put a little more nuance on it, but um, and I'm a huge fan of Ethereum, and I think what they've done is incredible. Um, uh, so so you're saying how how will this kind of play out? So I think um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, Ethereum is, it's, I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to, uh, let me say, I, I'm such a big fan that it will, I will sound like I, um, I'm just, uh, it, I just think what Vitalik did and what the, what the kind of Ethereum community did was so important because it, it, uh, it just, it really revitalized the space, um, you know, after all of the kind of, um, the block size debate and just kind of all the, the bitterness and things, um, it just provided this kind of whole fresh kind of perspective on things, inspired a new wave of entrepreneurs. It's now really kind of inspired Silicon Valley. So it's just a hugely important thing. Um, and, and, you know, it's, and they've got just incredible momentum. So I'll just, I'll tell you what I do. You know, what I do obviously is part of a big part of my week is meeting with entrepreneurs and they're building various crypto things. And it's just, you know, I'd say 90% of them are, are building something on Ethereum. Um, and so it's really just kind of captured, you know, the imaginations of people. I think it's... And are any of them planning to try out any of these other Yeah, ones? well, so that's the other question. So, I mean, so I think they, I think... If you're building an application, you, you want you know you ultimately want to get a lot of users using your application, right? Um, and if you if you build an application and it's successful and you and you start to be kind of rate limited by the platform, 
you know, I think a lot of those people will think about switching. Um, and this, you know, switching costs are, uh, you know, they're, it's not trivial, but a lot of other platforms are deliberately supporting like solidity and a lot of the other things to make it easier. The, 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 there, you would have to replicate some of the tooling, you know, like the, the browsers and the, and all those other kinds of things, but it's not that much right now. Um, so I think it's kind of just, to me, it's a big question of, I mean, look, it, 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 it sort of falls on a prior question. We first need applications that really break out, which, which you know, that break out to, you know, tens and then hundreds of millions of people. And at that point, maybe sometime in the next year or two, the applications that do that will probably be kingmakers of, the smart, of whatever smart contract platform satisfies their needs, right? Oh, interesting. So, you know, so, um, it, look, it, it sort of happened on... Uh, you know, imagine if, uh, you know, uh, let's, you know, when the iPhone came out, um, uh, you know, you had, I forgot what, what it was like Instagram and, you know, Snapchat and all the early kind of hit apps. If, you know, the iPhone just, you know, whatever at a million users wouldn't let you have more users or something, those people would have seriously considered Android or something. And that could have led to the development of or windows phone for that matter, or whatever it might be. And that could have, so, I think it's I think it's very really too early to call. I mean, I think I think it'd be really important. It's really is important that that uh, that you know that, that through this variety of things, both things being worked on by the Ethereum Foundation, by related companies, by Layer Two projects, it's important that a lot of these things uh, you know that, that figure out these scaling issues. You know, before I, so I think of it sort of a race between those two things. So applications that start to grow really quickly and are able to kind of decide which smart contract platforms uh, are the winners. And then, you know, on the other side, the smart contract platforms getting kind of um, uh, enough sort of scalability and features and everything else to satisfy those applications. Right. There's always this kind of yin and yang in technology between applications and infrastructure. Um, and so, so I think it's just, it's, I think it's too early to call until we see more development on the application side. Okay. So one other factor that I know a lot of people think will be one of the determinants of which blockchains will become dominant is governance. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like I've heard you talk about it uh, that much. What types of governance do you find most promising? And do you think it really will be a big determining factor? Uh, I do, for sure. Um, you know, I think the, the governance is interesting. There's, 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 you know, there's, there's, uh, there's kind of the formal governance and like, you know, these, all these debates around kind of like on-chain and off-chain governance, you know, and so like the most extreme example on one side, I think is something like Tezos where um, there's this very rich uh, uh, kind of on-chain governance system. Um, and then you have, you know, as I understand the folks at the Ethereum Foundation, they want to have kind of a more... Um, more kind of checks and balances. So you have sort of the people that, you know, running nodes and the miners and then the, you know, and then you'd have also the ability for, you know, in the proof of stake when they move to proof of stake for, for people that, that, that own the currency to have some influence. Um, but, but, but they, but they would argue, I think that, and I don't want to, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it, but I think they would argue that if you just do it all on chain through voting of by stakers that you might end up with a plutocracy, so I think it was a very interesting debate. I don't have an answer. I tend to think I tend to I tend to think that the kind of the model that Ethereum and Bitcoin have kind of come to, which is you do have a kind of it's a little bit like uh, the you know the the U.S. system where you have kind of multiple branches of government, right? So and those branches are sort of on chain, off chain, then miners, etc. I tend to think that that some kind of um, mixed model like that seems to be working. Look, it's kind of what happened. I mean, I, you know, I'm also looking, look, if you look back to pre-crypto and you look at how, you know, how was HTTP and all the sort of web protocols governed? I mean, the reality is it was, it was kind of a complicated thing, but you had, you had standards bodies. So, you know, you have the W3C or something like this and they would come up with specs, but then you also have the software makers. So like Chrome and Internet Explorer and Firefox have a big influence on like how HTTP, sorry, HTML and HTTP, for that matter, but how those protocols evolve, right? And you kind of had this, you know, this, these multiple parties and people kind of, you know, it was a little bit of a messy process, but they kind of come together and it generally works. It's a little slower than, you know, a centralized for-profit company would move. But, um, so I think we kind of have models and I'm optimistic about it. Um, but I do think it's very important. I mean, and you see these debates around like, you know, EOS and all these other kinds of new networks where there's like, you know, more controversial kind of governance models. Um, I think the key to me, the key is that I guess the, the two things you need to balance, um, on the one hand, you know, the key idea here in all the crypto stuff is trust, right? And so 
if you don't trust, you know, the only way that end users are going to trust that they really own a virtual good or they really own this digital money or something is ultimately that trust has to kind of flow from the trust in the platform. So I think it's very, very important that these networks be trusted. Right. And so there's trust uh, you want, but you want to trade out. And so trust kind of leans you towards conservatism, right. And not changing much. On the other hand, this is software and you need to evolve and you need to scale and you need to do all sorts of other things. So there's this kind of delicate balance that needs to be uh, walked. And I think, you know, it, it probably, it's, it, it will probably very likely be uh, a major determinant of which of these platforms win is which ones are best governed. You talk often about how what people work on on nights and weekends mm-hmm. is usually what ends up becoming the revolutionary technologies that take over our lives. Mm-hmm. Based on that theory, how do you think crypto networks will have changed our lives three, five, ten years, or pick your time scale uh, from now? Yeah. So yeah. So that theory is just if you just kind of go. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about is it just a coincidence that so many uh, tech stories, you know, I read a lot of history books and biographies and things. And so many of them start with like, you know, the homebrew hacker club and the weekend club and the, you know, hacking on the weekend and all these other things. And so, so kind of, you know, I was, I was reading those and I was like, is that, is that just like a coincidence that all these things, that, that all these things sort of start off as hobbies or is there some logic to it? And then I, I, I kind of came up with a view that, that there's a logic to it. And, and so you sort of think about it is, if if you're a smart engineer, you kind of have two, you have two you have two uh, different lives, right? You have your nine to five life, and you have your non nine to five life. Non non nine to five life. Your nine to five life is controlled. What you work on is controlled by probably a business person who's probably thinking on a you know one to two year horizon, you know, or something like that, right? I mean, that's sort of how most business incentives are set up. And then your non you know, your, it's your nights and weekends where you're able to do what you want, which is really where you're sort of taking a much longer term horizon. So I kind of see it as there's sort of, you know, there's other places like research labs and governments and places, I'm sorry, and universities and, and government funded projects where people are able to take a longer term horizon. But in the kind of, in the programming world, a lot of the longer term horizon is really just sort of done ad hoc by engineers on places like, you know, GitHub and Reddit and whatever. And they're just up, you know, it's what you do and you think it's fun and interesting. And so I think there's sort of a deep logic as to why a lot of things that have ended up being really important, the PC, the internet, like a whole bunch of other things, um, started off as sort of nights and weekend projects. So, you know, I think, so what will the world look in five, 10 years? So I think that, um, I guess the way I imagine things kind of playing out is we're going to continue to see, I'm very optimistic that, for example, all of these questions around kind of smart contract platform scaling and kind of layer one scaling and all these kinds of, these will all get, I'm very sure these will all get worked out. These are a lot of smart people working on a lot of good ideas. So we'll have these highly scalable networks. We'll have networks that where, where you can truly build kind of trust as a primitive and build other components around it. I think one thing people underestimate with software, I think software is misunderstood in a lot of ways as a, as sort of engineering analogous to, you know, building a bridge or something like this. Like you kind of like you're given a spec and you build the software to build it. I think software is much more analogous to writing, like, you know, uh, writing a novel or something. It's a, um, so software is the, the, one of the key features of software is, is the composability, meaning you can take pieces like Lego bricks and you can compose new pieces and you can take those pieces and build new pieces. It's very much like English or something where you can take words and build sentences. You can take sentences and build paragraphs. You can take paragraph, right. You know, and just like, you know, no, no one would ever say, you know, uh, uh, when people say things like you can never build a piece of software that does X, Y, and Z, you know, that the smart contract that does it, it'll never work. Right. It's to me, it's sort of equivalent to saying you could never write a novel that involves a, you know, I don't know, a, a whale and a, and a ca- ship captain and it's really moving and blah, blah, you know, like really you want to bet that like no human can ever put words together in a certain way to like, you know, have this emotional effect and this story. And this, it's just like, it, it's such a, a rich, malleable medium, very much like English language, the English language or something. It's, it's, it's different because you're using, you know, it's, you're using, uh, logical components to build other logical components as opposed to maybe like emotional components or something. So I don't want to take the analogy too far, but that composability is such a key feature. And so we're in this very interesting period now where we've got this new major new Lego block, which is this idea that you can build trusted things. And then this Lego block, 
and it's like the best Lego block. It's like awesome. That's why I'm so excited. So it's like, you know, um, and so, you know, it just totally changes what you can build with the Lego blocks, right? So you got this new thing and you can build, so now you have trust, you can build money, right? And then, okay, so money that unlocks like a whole bunch of stuff, right? So then you can build finance and lending and also, and that's a whole like thread of the tree, right? And then you got like goods, crypto goods we were talking about, and that's going to be a whole tree. That's, that tree is going to get built out over the next two years uh, or the next two to 10 years. Um, and you got all this. So anyway, so you got this. So it's all going to be kind of – and so, so I guess it's a long-winded way, way of saying I expect to be surprised and I expect that other people are much smarter and more creative than me. Um, and there's going to be all sorts of awesome stuff. And what I'm excited about is that we got this awesome new Lego block and in, in, in a field where uh, – that says – malleable and as broad and as expansive as, you know, writing in the English language or something. I think the way it's going to play out is you're going to see more and more stuff. I think, I think what I talk about a lot is you're going to have kind of an inside out adoption pattern. And what I mean by that is uh, you're going to see, okay, so like a bunch of people are building lending platforms in Ethereum. And right now it's going to start off as totally crypto. So you're going to lend it you're going to be able to lend like your ether to the to the smart contract and the smart contract will in turn lend it out to other people right and it's weird and it's crypto and and you know people will say oh but it's only for ethereum and i like that doesn't, that's not for mainstream people but then look you add in a stable coins and i think stable coins will be working and you know you'll have some like scaled out working stable coins in a couple of years and stable coins you know what that means is you've got a crypto asset that's pegged to something like a dollar right and so suddenly then you've got okay so you combine those two lego bricks right you take lending and you take stable coins and suddenly you have dollar lending platforms, right? I mean, so it's not that weird anymore. And then you, you know, you add on a nice iPhone user interface, app interface, and suddenly you have, you know, basically the core function of Citibank replicated, uh, you know, from a crypto network, right? But I think it's going to, when I say inside out, what I mean, it's going to start with like crypto people doing it and it'll be like crypto traders and all this other stuff. And everyone will say, oh, this is a weird thing. But like, it just takes a few small steps to like, boom, okay, then you like plug this thing in and it's a mainstream thing, right? right. And it's not going to be like, you're not going to, it's not going to be, I don't think the way it's going to be is like, you're not going to have like crypto bank and like everyone's going to go to crypto bank instead of Citibank. It'll just become that like the, the legacy banks just become less relevant because like more and more stuff is going to happen in the digital world. You're going to be in your, you know, virtual world, like you're in the metaverse and buying some virtual goods. And you just naturally will go and like get it from a smart contract through a state with using a stable coin. Like, why would you go and work with one of these like, you know, janky user interfaces with a legacy bank and all this other stuff. So it'll just become, you know, it's sort of like, uh, it's very similar to how, if you look at the adoption patterns of like Twitter and Facebook and so like, it's not like people like said, okay, I'm going to, you know, it's not like one day everyone said, Hey, let's stop going to the New York times and let's just go to Twitter or something. It's just that like, and, and the way it starts by the way is like, it, it, you know, for years, Twitter and all these other networks were just people like, you know, like me and my friends or whatever. And we just like talk about tech. This we used to, Twitter used to be a tech chat room or something back when, back in the old days, I kind of miss those, those days, but, uh, um, it used to be like a tech chat room. And then over time, you know, you had like kind of more and more mainstream people come on and it's just like, eventually it just becomes like the other stuff. It just becomes kind of like, you still go there and it still exists, but it's just not as relevant. Right. Um, and so I think that, and that's why I call it inside out. Cause it's not like you just one day, like have, a replacement or something like a substitute and everyone just like stops going to the bank and goes to this other bank or something. It's just more that like more and more of these functions just kind of happen and inside out, meaning it's going to happen more. And I think most of it's going to happen like with crypto native people and this kind of crypto world and you have this kind of alternative crypto uh, kind of ec economy financial system. And then, you know, but then there's just like a few little moves you need to make like stable coins and interfaces and a few other things to suddenly make it much more mainstream accessible. Well, so I do have a question about this because I agree with you that will probably happen something like that. But I think, you know, a lot of people, when they extol the virtues of crypto, they talk about its potential to democratize access to financial services. But the thing is that the earlier you are, the kind of wealthier you're going to be in this system. And so far, most of the early wealthy holders in crypto tend to be white and Asian men. So do you think it's important to change that? And if so, how can we do it with a, a decentralized network that is, you know, just by definition, not a top down system? Yeah, I mean, so first, first of all, I believe we're in the very early innings of this. So there's plenty of time if you want to be part of it to join. And I think there'll be plenty of, you know, there's, there's I think there's going to be a ton of things that will become incredibly valuable. And so there's still, you know, we're still very, very, it's just, this is, you know, early days. And Although so, so many people already have become millionaires and billionaires off of crypto. So, yeah. Um, uh, but I still think it's early days. I don't know. I mean, I think it's very early days. So, um, 
look, I mean, I don't know. We're investing as if it's early days, and we're, you know, I believe that. Obviously, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. But um, so I think it's very early days. And so, but I do, like, I think your point is great. We need to, you know, I, I, the more we can do to bring more people in, and look, it's, I think it's, and be inclusive and, and make this a welcoming community, the better. Um, so I think it's a great point. But I, I think it's still very early days. So I think if you're, you know, a person looking for a career move or a new thing to work on, you know, you should come, you know, listen to your podcast, listen to our podcast, like don't read Thanks the negative the stuff, read the positive stuff. Um, I don't know if you, um, at least I would call our stuff, the po- you know, we're, we're, we're certainly positive, you know, go really learn about it. It's an incredibly interesting area. We want more people to come enter the ecosystem. And I think it's still early days. So, And what do you think about kind of the regulatory influence? Because sometimes I look at what the SEC is doing and I totally understand why they're doing it. And yet I do feel like it's also still perpetuating the system of the status quo where the wealthy accredited investors yeah. get in early. And yet at the same time, I understand why they're doing it. But do you think that there's any way that? Yeah. I, I think for example, like, look, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a regulator, but I, I think this idea that, that, okay. I mean, so like, let's, let's look at why, why these rules are there. The rules are there for good reasons to protect kind of main street investors from, you know, from people that are tricking them out of their money essentially. Right. Um, and that, and if you don't have those rules, that will happen. Right. And so you need to have regulation. And so regulation is important. And I think the question is, you know, is for example, with the definition of an accredited investor, is it, is the basic assumption implicit in that, that you have to have a million dollars or whatever it is, um, to be able to essentially the way it works, right. Is you have to go through all the, like there are certain exemptions where you're allowed to sell. So for example, when we invest in, in startups, we're operating through an exemption that says, because we're a qualified institute of credit or qualified institution, um, you know, we can, the, the, we can not go through all of the kind of onerous stuff that someone would go through like in an IPO. Right. So like with that, for example, that definition of credit investor, like I think a more modern version, like, okay, I think that if somebody knows is a sophisticated software developer who has spent years studying cryptocurrency, but isn't a millionaire, are they a sophisticated investor and able to make their own decisions? I think so. You know, should there be an alternative way to become an accredited investor? For example, like you can go and take a, a test or a programming test or, you know, a crypto test or something like, I think that would be a great idea. I'm not, I don't control these rules, but I've had to actually somebody pitch yeah. me that or mention something like that to yeah. me. I mean, I think you could think about, based. you could imagine more creative ways to decide. I think what you want, look, you do want to avoid this thing where you don't want, you know, you've seen, I've seen these people like with these Yahoo ads and things like trying to sell some random cryptocurrency none of us have ever heard of to some person, you know, this would, this is a bad thing, right? We don't want yes. this. None of us want this. We don't want this in the community. We don't want this ethically. Like, and that will happen if you don't have rules. So, the, so the, the tricky question is, how do you come up with a set of rules that allow sophisticated people who aren't rich to participate in the system while also protecting kind of, you know, quote unquote, but they call mainstream investors, you know, who aren't going to get, uh, you know, kind of tricked by these people. And, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, but I, I, I agree with the sentiment. But, but, I, but I don't think, but I will say, I don't think the answer is just like the sort of the what I think some people want to do, which is sort of get rid of all the rules. I think you do need these protections. I think they're very important. I think what we, I think ideally we have a regulatory system that balances those two things and balances innovation, provides clarity to to people in the space um, and also protects mainstream investors. I know you're a fan of Carlotta Perez's Mm -hmm. book, technological revolutions and financial capital. And in that book, she talks about how new technologies come along and they solve the problems that became apparent with the full maturation of the previous technological revolution. So I just wondered, and I know this is like, I was thinking this is kind of a tough question, but I'm just so curious. Do you think that there are certain prob- problems that decentralization will bring that aren't apparent now, but will become apparent decades from now? And if so, what, what might those be? I just sort of unintended consequences here. Yeah. Kind of like where we are with the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data privacy yeah. situation. No, I think that's, or- look, I, 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 you know, I think a lot about the fact that I, I was, I was involved in the sort of the, you know, the web two movement and uh it didn't end the way that i wanted it and i think a lot of other people wanted it to end which was this kind of you know i mean frankly we were maybe you know kind of this utopian maybe so maybe maybe in retrospect somewhat naive view that um by creating these giant new information networks it would have this you know awesome democratizing impact um and so you know i i was hoping it would have this sort of awesome democratizing impact and you know i think it did have a lot of very positive impacts but i think the idea that like now we've ended up with sort of five companies running the internet was not where i wanted to and so for example one obvious uh you know kind of failure mode here is uh you know we end up 
just creating new kind of giant monopolies that control everything or something. And maybe that's, you know, maybe they're decentralized and there's a few giant, you know, kind of uh, coin holders who own that and end up running things. And that was certainly wouldn't be a good outcome, right? Yeah, I think, that's where I was going with yeah. that other question too. I mean, that's what we had this. Uh, the you, know, you probably know the placeholder folks. They had a yeah. they had a conference where one of the uh, sessions I was part of was uh, what they call recentralization vectors. So you know, so new ways in which we sort of unintentionally get recentralized, uh, and how do we make sure this time that this movement you know uh, keeps true to the ideals? And so, so I think I think keeping you know keep being aware of where those kind of recentralization vectors could be is an important point. I think that's to me that's an obvious failure mode. Um, yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to also ask about is universal basic income is an idea that's been bandied about a lot in recent years, and I do feel like a blockchain could be an ideal way to dispense such an income. Have you seen any projects like this, and do you think that's an interesting idea or something that you think could? democratize the space yeah so putting aside so the, i think the ubi thing is a whole separate thing i think for example um brian armstrong just launched a, a new charity uh called give crypto uh which one of the ideas is uh there's been a lot of studies around kind of uh how to sort of provide assistance to people in the developing world um, and it it turns out, I don't know, intuitively or counterintuitively or whatever, that just kind of directly giving people money is actually a very effective way to do it as opposed to providing them. You, know, you provide them with shoes and you end up actually inadvertently like putting the shoe vendor out of business and hurting the local economy or whatever. Or the shoes get lost along the way or they don't fit or whatever. And so it turns out just directly giving money. But that's actually very hard to do in a lot of the places in the world. And so, for example, one of the things they're working on, I think it's an exciting idea, is how do you use, you know, uh, this technology to to make sure that the it goes to the rightful person, and so you can do a whole bunch of interesting things around identity and and you know taking advantage of the fact that there's so many more Android phones out there and things like that. So I think things like that are super interesting. There's a whole, I mean, the whole UBI thing. I think it's also interesting. It's a whole separate can of worms. <laughs> I'm qualified okay. to talk on, but. All right. Well, we're going to end on something that in your podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, he started with, and I wanted to start with okay. it, but All I was right. like, I can't start with the same question he started with. So you studied philosophy as your I major. Did, yeah, yeah. And I mentioned this to you before, you may not remember, but uh, my major was called modern thought and literature. So it's sort of like philosophy and literature. Um, but I heard you on a, another podcast where you were saying that in recent years, you've been turning to philosophers like the ancient Greeks and <laughs> thinking about ways in which one could live a good life. Yeah. So I just wondered, um, you know, here we've got these new networks that sort of create incentive structures that could incentivize people to do different things. And yeah. I wondered if you thought crypto assets could in any way help people live better lives, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe, you know, actually now we're seeing there's all these scammers and stuff. Um, but I wondered, you know, what your thoughts were around like merging those two, those two things. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely, uh, I mean, I think this is very, I mean, so I think for example, the idea that, um, you, you could have, New so okay so just, my my assumptions are the internet is the most important technology of this century or something and will and will control and we're already seeing this happen like politics economics so you know if if you maybe people listeners don't agree with me but I think it's just obviously the case and that who controls the internet you know can probably controls all of these other very powerful things in society right and and how the money flows and a whole bunch of other things and so and I think for example this should be. Um, a golden period for creators. So for writers, you know, like you, for musicians, for uh, all sorts of people, we now have, you know, soon to have almost everyone on earth with a internet access. It should be an amazing time for coordinating human activity, for sharing knowledge, for sharing create creative acts, for having the people that create those things participate in the economics of those things. I think that the way that we've constructed the networks that govern the internet today is not doing a good job at that. Um, and so I think this is a chance to try to improve that and more uh, like kind of in a more meritocratic way, share information, share knowledge, share education, share money, have a better way of, you know, uh, having a, a information network that creates better politics, not worse politics. Um, I don't think we've succeeded as that, at that so far. Definitely we, the not. Technology community, no, and it, it's not. It's not a good thing. And I think, I think it's the most important thing. This is what gets me excited about this. Frankly, is that I, I, I am not excited about. I was not. I mean, you know, the crypto thing. This is why I'm doing the crypto fund. This is why because I feel like this is a. This has gravitas. This has a. This movement has a chance to do something very important. Um, you know, for the internet, which is 
such an important, which is going to be an increasingly important thing. And, you know, I personally had no interest in like sort of another, whatever, you know, chat app or whatever, like this kind of stuff that was happening in the venture world that was not exciting to me. This is exciting. This is important. So look, I don't want to like sound, you know, naively utopian. I realize that this, this could not work, that this could go wrong, um, that there's all sorts of things, but I think it's a problem worth working on. Um, and I think this is by far the most likely technology for, um, improving these things. And so, I don't know. I've decided to effectively devote my life to it and, and, uh, and I'm excited to work with people who are excited about it. And I think it's a huge, important topic. And, and I hope that we can construct new information networks that, that do a better job than the, than the current ones are doing. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, well, this has been such a great discussion. Where can people learn more about you and Andreessen Horowitz? Oh, where can they learn more? So, uh, and your new crypto fund. Yeah, A16ZCrypto.com. Uh, and so we have uh, a blog post there. And then we've done some podcasts in the past and things like that. So Great. please check that out. All right, perfect. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Chris, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Rahul Singh and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.